Thank you. Let's stand open our Bibles to Acts chapter 18. Acts chapter 18. As we get to go through the life of Paul and his ministry. Look this morning as he gets to Corinth. We'll read verses 1 through 4. The Bible says, After these things, Paul departed from Athens and came to Corinth and found a certain Jew named Aquila, born in Pontus, lately come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all Jews to depart from Rome, and he came to them. And because he was of the same craft, he abode with them and wrought, for by their occupation they were tent makers. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and persuaded the Jews and the Greeks. I want us to focus our attention for just a few minutes on these two, Aquila and Priscilla. Often in ministry and in churches, because the pastor and staff are usually in the limelight or on the platform, those are the ones that we recognize and usually the ones that when we talk about the work of God, those are the people mentioned. But anybody here involved in the ministry knows it takes a lot of people doing a lot of things. It takes great dedication and participation and what took place not just here in Corinth but down the road in Ephesus and then in Rome and other places. We just see a couple that's really plugged in and helping. And when I think of chapter 18, the more uh, I, the longer I pass, the more I live, uh, I understand providence in the lives of Christians, and you think this is a divine encounter, this is not accidental, Uh, although Aquila was a Jew, he ended up going to Rome, and Mary and Priscilla, we don't know the circumstances, I'm just supposing by the context here, they were already Christians, he could have been part of the group, there was a group from Pontus uh, there at Pentecost, maybe he got saved at Pentecost, Ended up back in Rome, but he thinks he's going to live there and do well in a booming economy. But the Bible says, Claudius, he makes this command that all Jews have to depart. And uh, they fold up their tent making business and end up in Corinth. And this is when a lot of people get disgruntled with God. God, you changed my plans. You interrupted my dreams and you uprooted my vision, and suddenly I find myself here, but God was specifically from heaven orchestrating pieces like those on a chessboard. And he said, I need this couple helping this man, and I'm going to put them in the same city and allow them to cross paths. Now remember, no website, no church site, no building, no advertisement. This was a divine appointment where literally God takes the hand of this couple and the hand of Paul and he connects them. And wouldn't you know what a coincidence that they're both tent makers. Maybe they met at the market. I don't know how they met. I just know how we can see the hand of God in this. And you look back in your life, the longer you live, and you see the hand of God. The, I think back to 1988 when God brought a young lady into my life. Now, at that point, it wasn't a coinkadink. It was, I looked over and saw a beautiful young lady and said, I'm hoping, Lord, that that person can be part of my future if you're okay with that. And he was okay with that. Amen. How many are glad when, when God's okay with one, one of your plans? But that, that wasn't accidental. That was God orchestrating things. 
And that's exactly what was taking place right here. God had put these two together. And here's what I want you to see. Just a couple things from their lives. We have six texts in the Bible that mentions this couple, but very important facts and the information are given to us. Now, here's what you are going to see. When uh, one is mentioned, they're always mentioned together. Priscilla and uh, Aquila. Now, here's, here's what I think. I'm convinced that you have a godly couple that is working together in ministry and how greatly our churches need godly couples. Let, let me say that again. Godly couples. That's male and female, godly couples, husband and wife, uh, married biblically, spiritual goals, seeking to honor God in their lives. Amen? And too often we have one of the two dedicated, fervent, passionate, fully involved, and the other one is either left behind or dragged behind. And God wants... Both. And young people, when you're looking for a mate, you need to look for someone uh, on your spiritual level. Some of you need to up your spiritual level. Marry someone on your spiritual level and say, I want this person to be able to serve God. I want to serve God together as a family. I learned years ago when we see these young couples married, the first thing I want to do is arrange things. We've often seen uh, two people interested in each other, involved in different ministries. And then when they get married, we always have a sit down. I say, listen, I'm not removing you because I'm disappointed in you. I'm repositioning you so you can work together. Kimberly was in a ministry for years and we moved her out of that ministry contrary to the desires of those involved in that ministry. But I said, guess what? We're Oscar ministers. Kimberly needs to minister. Mr. Basa back there, years in a ministry, but when he put his eyes on Edie's and they decided to be joined together in holy matrimony, I said, Chris, your life's going to be a little bit changed here because as you minister together as a couple, I want it to be together as a couple. And too many have grown accustomed to living two separate lives. Here's what you see. This couple, you know, I think you ought to soul win together. I think you ought to serve together. You ought to disciple together. It's a robust amen that's taking place. Companions in a gospel-centered ministry. It shouldn't be Adam. It should be Adam and Kim. It shouldn't be Robert. It should be Robert and... Joe, amen, it shouldn't be Chris, it should be Chris and Amy, and I thank God, the majority of our couples, when they're mentioned in the church, it's, it's never one singular person or a singular name, but a joint effort, and if you're the one in the marriage that has done little for Christ, there's still time. To say, I need to change that. And I want to change that. I want to make sure that I'm not leaving my spouse to serve God alone. This should be a joint effort. Matthew 6, says, seek ye what? First. And that's what they were doing as a couple. They were seeking God first in their home, their lives, 
their marriages. And look what it says in verse 3. Because he was of the same craft, he abode with them and wrought for their occupation. By their occupation, they were what? Tent makers. I think the majority of people that are serving Christ are tent makers. Very few people actually are able to be paid full-time serving God. The majority of people have a full-time job, and then they have a full-time life of serving God. One of the greatest messages we've heard behind this pulpit 20 years ago was the message, don't trade your trade for your purpose. How many were here for that message? Powerful. And that's what so many Christians have done. They've taken their trade in life. It doesn't matter what it is. Remodeling houses, working for uh, a company. What, whatever God has gifted you with as a mechanic or a plumber, whatever God has given you, you've made a career out of that. You don't want to make that your primary purpose for living. God has given you a higher purpose. Here's what they said. We can make tents. But that's not our purpose for living. Our purpose is to honor God and win souls and disciple new converts. And church, they were successful in their business. I I thank God. The multitude of people that God has given us uh, that are tent makers and saying, we want to make sure that we're using our gifts and our goods for the honor and the glory of God. Nate Johnson has that uh, construction business and so much of what's been done in here. You say, Pastor, of these domino lights. Whose idea was that? If it's a good idea and you're positive about it, it was my idea. And if you think it was a bad idea, that's Nate Johnson. Go blame it on him. But someone determined to use their business to honor and glorify God and channel funds and effort and energy towards God's work. I thank God. For couples like Chris and Amy, that if for years, who knows how many thousands and thousands of dollars uh, that they have invested in God's work through using their house and cooking meals and uh, gathering the college students. There is a great sacrifice in that. I don't know if you've noticed, when you put uh, 25, 30 college students in a single house, there's going to be a disaster that follows. (laughs) Things get broke. The house gets dirty. That is not just an investment. The, the 25 kids can eat a lot of food, especially when the majority are girls. That's all. It's called a great consumption of calories right there. That's, that's not, you guys know in this church, that's not funded by the church. That's funded by CNA, Chris and Amy. Thank God for people who said I'm a tent maker. That's not going to keep me from serving God. That's going to help me serve God. Brother Dilworth used his van now for years. About, just about the time he showed up, we started the bus routes. And the first thing he said was, Pastor, I have a large passenger van. We can use that as one of the vans for the church. That's just people that are tent makers saying, I want to make sure that I'm involved in, in using my goods, my money. And here's the problem. Most can't do that because... God says it's impossible to serve God and mammon. And most lie to themselves. When they get a good job, they they say, they say, Pastor, look at this. I'm moving up. I'm going to be less involved in God's house, but I'm going to be able to do more financially. Lies. It's all a bunch of lies. They get consumed. And the next thing you know, they're not only doing less, they're giving less. Because the more you make, the more you spend. 
And the more you get around the crowd that's making more, you got to look like you're making more. And that takes a lot of money. Got to live in the right neighborhood. You got to wear the right clothes. You got to drive the right car. Your wife has to wear the right jewelry. It's tough looking big time. Costs a fortune. And suddenly, instead of being able to invest in God's work, you got to invest in God's creation. You. Amen. That's what happens. Now, look what it says in Romans 16, another verse that mentions this couple. Romans 16, verse 3. They were co-laborers in Christ with Paul. All those says verse 3, Greek, Priscilla and Aquila. Now they're at Rome. We'll explain that in a minute. What's the next phrase say? My helpers. Can a pastor say that about you? How would your pastor describe you as a church member? My headache. My concern. My grief. Or my helpers. There are some of you that get mentioned often. If I'm with other crowds or other preachers, you get mentioned. I have pastor, I talked to two pastors yesterday, and they asked about, it's funny that they ask about the same people in the church because they know they are my helpers. Outside of this circle, not, not well-known, not nationally known, just people that have come through Cap City and they quickly observe and identify there are some people without the captain's hat or without the position, but they are simply dedicated to being helpers, co-laborers. Let me get more specific, not just co-laborers, but we're talking about helping build their local church. I'm always a little bit surprised by people saying, I'm serving God, but you can't find anything they're doing in their local church. Do you know co-labor in Christ means you're actually not tearing it apart. You're not absent, invisible. You're not slanderous. You're not a gossiper. You're not hurting your local church or the, the authority that God has put in that local church or the ministries of the local church. But you are an active participant that is building. Would, would anybody confuse you for a builder of your local church? Would people think of people that are building the local church? Would your face even pop into their mind? Here's what's happening. In at least the church at Rome, the church at Corinth, and the church of Ephesus, when they thought of builders, they thought of the same couple. Here's someone, here's a couple that everywhere they went, they were being a blessing. And I would have to say this in five of the six verses where we find these two mentioned. Priscilla is mentioned first, which means she was probably an even larger help than her husband. I'm not speaking of pounds, but of effort. Man, some of you looked at me crossways when I said that. Helpers in God's house. But that's usually the way it is. 
usually the woman is the one that's more involved and more willing and more dedicated. God give us men that are spiritual leaders. You know, homes need spiritual leaders so they can be spiritual helpers in the church. You know why today we have so many counselors and psychologists and medication? Why? How did for 250 years our nation survive with all the psychiatrists, without all the psychiatrists, without all the psychologists, with all, without all the counselors, with all, without all the medication. How did our people survive without that for two and a half centuries? Because there were spiritual leaders in the homes that were the psychologists and the counselors and the comforters and the guidance counselors. They didn't need medication. The the parents provided stability in the emotional aspect of the childhood of each one born into that household. And here's what we see. Mom and dad, fellow helpers in Christ. Church, I I believe this. Every couple, I don't think there's an exemption. I believe if you're a born-again child of God, you ought to grow, get baptized, and then you ought to go through discipleship, you ought to go through mentorship, and then you ought to get involved and in the growth process. Then you become a soul winner. Like you were one, you win others. Like you were discipled, you disciple others. As you were mentored, you now mentor others. As you grow and teach and help and minister, because you were ministered to, now you are capable. Isn't that the natural process of life? What would you think of someone 35 who's not capable, who's not capable of cooking a meal or rearing a child or ironing their clothes or cleaning their own house? You would say there's a mental disorder. We used to call it retardation. Now that's offensive, but I think that's literally what it is. And there's a mental disorder. A mental disorder in Christianity, people that have been in God's house, that have been discipled and mentored and ministered to, never reach a point in their Christian life where they're reciprocating the attention and the help that they've received. Here's what they said. We've been in church long enough watching and being ministered to. It's time for us to stand up and help and be a blessing and minister to someone else. It's time for us to make a hospital visit. It's time for us to deliver some food. We've had food delivered to us and phone calls made and texts made and discipleship classes. How about if we go do that for someone else? You're not happy with your child at 52 sitting at your table, banging their forks on the tabletop and saying, food, mom, food. You say, that kid has a problem. I would too. It's not the kid, it's the parents. But we're not supposed to expect the pastor to be upset when you got congregation banging their forks on the table after 10, 20 years in church saying, food, pastor, food. That's not what they were doing. These were fellow helpers in their local church. Now, you would say everyone should be a fellow helper, not a fellow herder. But if you're not capable of helping and you're fully capable of hurting, you are a spiritual problem. 
You don't find them ever hurting a church, only blessings being spoken about from the mouth of Paul concerning the life of these two Priscilla and Aquila. Now look what it says in verse 4, something very interesting is stated. Who have for my life laid down their own necks. Now that is one of the most amazing statements about someone else in all the Bible. No higher compliment. I truly don't think a higher compliment. It's one thing you lay down a finger, lay down a foot, but lay down your neck. That's your juggler vein. I'm talking about someone that took great risk for the sake of the gospel. This is, oh God, give us Priscilla's and Aquila's. I've had a few of these in ministry. Uh, Every pastor desires, and some actually have to minister their entire uh, life without having a true Priscilla and Aquila in their congregations. Thank God for the multitude of Priscilla and Aquila's that God has given me over the course of my ministry. But he said, these are people that have laid down their lives. Now, let's just take a peek because what happened in Ephesus was not fully expounded or explained in Scripture. We just get a few glimpses. Go with me to 2 Corinthians 1, 8 through 10. This is the region of Asia right here in Ephesus that Paul is speaking of. 2 Corinthians 1, 8 through 10. Look what it says. For we would not, brethren, some of you flipped over to the Old Testament. It's just a few pages <laughs> beyond Romans. So if you're near Genesis, just stop looking and we'll read the text for you. For we would not, brethren, have you ignorant of our trouble which came to us in Asia. This is while they're in Ephesus. That we were pressed. What's Paul say? Paul was not an exaggerator. Paul was not a complainer. Paul nearly died on numerous occasions. But this is the one time he says, we were pressed out of measure, above strength, insomuch we what? We despaired even of life. But we, he's, he's using this in the plural form. We. His fellow helpers. Who was his fellow helpers in this part of the world, Asia, Ephesus during this time, Priscilla and Aquila. We had the sentence of death. He he said, we should have died. This, we, I've heard preachers preach this in the spiritual sense. This is not speaking in the spiritual sense. This isn't talking about death by sin passed upon all men. We're, We're talking about physically they were going to die. He said that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God we trace the dead who delivered us from so great a death and doth deliver. That goes with me to 1 Corinthians 15, verse 32. Just back a couple pages. 1 Corinthians 15, 32. If after the manner of men I have fought with what? Beasts at Ephesus. Now, I know people try to explain that away. Paul, he's not speaking allegorically. He's not speaking metaphorically. He's speaking in very direct. He was probably put into a coliseum at Ephesus. You guys know uh, what happened in that part of the world in ancient times. When someone's going to be put to death, a lot of times for them it was sport, it was games. I believe, according to the connotation of Scripture, he was literally put into a coliseum and made sport with wild beasts and somehow God helped him supernaturally survive the moment. 
Now go back with me to Acts chapter 20, verse 18 for just a moment. He was speaking in the context of death in that text we just read. We didn't read the surrounding verses, but that is the context. Acts 20, verse 18. When they were come to him, he said to them, Ye know from the first day that I came to Asia, after what manner I have been with you at all seasons, serving the Lord with all humility of mind, and with what? Many tears and temptations, speaking of trials, which befell me by the lying of the weight of the Jews. Okay, let me tell you a secret. Paul was a tough customer. And when we talk about this man crying, there were heavy loads that he was carrying at his time in Ephesus. Now, are you guys getting the picture? Scripture doesn't give us the details. It gives us glimpses. But whatever took place in Ephesus, it was heavy, heavy stuff that brought Paul near to death, caused much tears, and guess who was there with him? Priscilla and Aquila. And they didn't tap out. You would think, okay, most Christians, when they get saved, they're so excited. Life's going to be good. And I'm not going to catch a cold. And the Lord will deliver me from COVID. And I, I'm not going to have any problem. My kids are going to be intelligent, rich, and merry, right. And it's going to be amazing what happens. This company's going to give me a raise. And serving Jesus is great. And then they get fired. And the kid's dumb. The car breaks down. And they quit serving God. I'm not talking about that. I am talking about real life with extreme satanic opposition and suffering. Uh, And Priscilla and Aquila said, it's good, Paul, we're with you. I've literally in the ministry had people tell me, Pastor, we're with you all the way, and the next week they leave. Yeah. All the way till Friday is what they meant to say, but they, they didn't spit out Friday. They just didn't. I hate it when people don't finish the sentence. It's like, at least finish the sentence if you're going to talk to me. But they were with Paul all the way to the end. And you would have think that at Ephesus they would have quit, they would have tapped out, but no. They, they go from Corinth. To Ephesus, from Ephesus to Rome, from Rome back to Ephesus. Why? Because they said, we're in this for the long haul. We want to be a blessing, co-laborers, co-workers. God did not call us to preach like Paul. We're not in the spotlight, but we can be the foot soldiers in the battle, co-laborers in the church. Willing to take great risks. Now, here's my personal opinion. What I just want to insert, let you know, based on the scripture we read and the places they are found in scripture, here's my opinion of what happened. So Paul meets him in Corinth. He's there for 18 months. From there, he goes to Ephesus. They pack up their bags. The church is established at this point. The church continues on. They go to Ephesus. Now the church was in their house in Corinth. Now the church is in their house In Ephesus, Paul's going to be there three years, preaching and teaching, then he will leave. I believe at this point, for some reason, they end up back in Rome. Now, if you look at the timeline here of Paul's ministry, it coincides. I don't really know. I can't 
be precise, but I would give a good guess based on Scripture that they were probably in Rome when the famous fire of Nero took place in 64 AD that burned up 10 of those 14 sections of Rome. And Nero, what did he do? He's probably the one that said it, but he blamed it on the Christians in order to create great persecution. I don't think it'd be too much to suppose that they lost their house in the fire, and if they didn't lose it in the fire, they lost it because of the persecution. And once again, they find themselves on the road back in Ephesus. Now, we just read here in Romans 16 that they had, go back with me to Romans 16 for one second, who have for my life laid down their own necks. Here's what I believe happened. Persecution in Corinth, persecution in Ephesus. They go to Rome, extreme persecution in Rome. They go back to Ephesus. I wouldn't doubt if they go back to Ephesus, totally broke. Not broken in spirit. And here's what, now, there's so much that Paul says here. Okay, these two verses are some of the greatest list of, of praise for any co-worker in the ministry. He said, my helpers, when you talk about Paul and the demand, pastor, you're a harsh man. Work with Paul? <laughs> pastor, you seem to try, find trouble. Work with Paul? I've never asked you to lay down your life. $10 for barbecue is not your life, believe it or not. He said, I give thanks for them. But he, now look what the next phrase says. Also, all the churches. No exaggeration. He said, every Gentile church has been impacted by this couple. Now, here's what he said. Okay, you're talking about a place, go with me to 1 Corinthians uh, 16. Because this is about this couple endlessly using their goods in their house. 1 Corinthians 16, verse 19. Look what it says. The church of Asia, salute you. Aquila and Priscilla. Now, he's writing this from Ephesus. They're meeting in the, the house of Priscilla and Aquila in Ephesus. But the church of Corinth had been started in their house as well. So you have these Gentile churches that know Priscilla and Aquila, they just go make money. They get the biggest house possible. Now, back in these days, there was no middle class. You were either a have or a have not. You either were, most were poor and there were a few that were rich. Obviously, up at this point, Priscilla and Aquila were very gifted what they did. They were able to afford, when you have congregations that are growing 30, 80, 100, 200, you're going to have to have a sizable house. And you guys know back in those days, houses were not sizable. But somehow God uh, put this couple gifted and making money into the life of Paul, financing, because remember once again, they were not buying buildings. They were not building. This is the only generation of Christians that put more emphasis on the building than building the people. More emphasis on the people building a structure, gloat, like they're the goat of Christianity, because I've got more square footage than you. Have you seen our gym? Have you seen our school? Have you seen our daycare? Have you seen our property? Now they don't even talk about property. They talk about campuses. You know, we got a campus and you pull up and it's two acres. 
Like, that's disappointing. And all this whole time I was thinking, campus. You're talking camping. <laughs> this was a family that said, our house, I'm so thankful. Fred and Eddie haven't been in the church long. You know what? Uh, their house is always, oh, pastor, no, we'll feed them, we'll, house them, we'll host them. I was talking last year, missions conference. We have, we have people, here's, here's what's so amazing, that sometimes American culture has been affected by Latin culture, Latin culture has been affected by American culture, and it seems like we can never pick up the good traits, we always have to pick up the bad traits. <laughs> but in Spanish, when they, for years, when they invite you over to their house, they would say, Te invito a mi pobre casa. Let me invite you to my poor house. Now, we've been to some of the mountains of Mexico and Argentina where dirt floors and uh, brick wall, you know, it was a poor house. But we've been to other places. They say, te invito a mi pobre casa. I invite you to my poor house. And you walk over there and it's luxury tile in a beautiful neighborhood. And I want to say, you just told a big fat lie. <laughs> you should have told me I'll invite you to my nice, beautiful, rich house. Here's what's amazing. There was a time when everybody that was a born-again child of God, open door, hosting policy. Any pastor come to town, my table is set. Didn't matter what we had, uh, we were going to prepare it and with a good heart offer uh, our room and our house and our table and our kitchen and our fridge. And now that we have more square footage than ever before and nicer furniture than ever before and a fuller fridge than ever before, you didn't even own stain. Stainless didn't even exist when you used to host missionaries. And now that you have stainless everything except carpet, now that you have stainless Steel dishwasher, refrigerator, tabletop. No, Pastor, I, you know, I've got too much going to have someone over to my house. Too much going. You don't even have kids in the house. Too much going. What's that, your cat? I think uh, couples like Kelly's use their house for the honor and the glory of God. Thank God for people. doesn't matter what it is. I told my girls when they buy vehicles, are literally... Our house and our cars are in a constant cycle of loaning. And if it gets a stain on it, yesterday I was dealing with the situation, went out with someone, and we went out, had something to drink, and we're sitting there talking, and he put the cup in between. I don't talk about the Lexus, put the cup in between, so he's talking. And if, before he went to jump out, he's grabbing stuff, saying, forgot about the cup in his lap, squeeze it with the legs, and soda went. Wouldn't you know I'd have to have those? Seats that have air conditioning, so it got 80,000 holes in them. The good thing is we didn't have to wipe up the Coke. The seat ate it. Just like. Now you know why I don't let people eat or drink in my truck. The one time I make an exception. But you know what we don't want to do? Now that we have those goods and those possessions, we don't want God to use them. And here was the testimony about these two personas. Well, uh, you can ask their, for their car. You can ask for their house. You can use their extra room. Go back with me to Acts 18. 
I thank God because how's it take abuse? When we were in Sagun, the second church that we started in Mexico, we started in a house, Isaac, Isaac Pacheco. And when we first got started, the church was growing in 15 or 20 people. And he said, use my house, preacher. And I said, let me talk to your wife. And we sat down. I said, uh, here's what the church is going to do. Obviously, we'll fix anything that gets broken. But I can't fix your spirit when something gets broken. Here's what I won't do. I won't stay in your house if it's becoming a heavy burden because things will get stolen and things will get broken. And sometimes it won't just be a cup or a plate. It may be a piece of tile that's difficult to replace. Sometimes it won't be a toilet handle. It'll be a toilet. And I said, we will fix it, but you have to hassle. And for two years... People wandered in and out of that house and things got stolen and things got broken. And that woman smiled and every two or three weeks I'd sit down with them and say, you guys doing okay? Anything need? Oh, pastor, we're fine. About what, babe? Eight, 12 months ago, my mom called me up. Hey, there's a Spanish-speaking couple up here at the house and we're having a tough time communicating, but they keep mentioning your name at San from Mexico. We drove out to the ranch, and there was Isaac Pacheco telling us about church and what God's doing, how God's blessed, and that little girl now has become a teenager, and he said, Pastor, you remember all those years using our house is the church building? That's Aquila and Priscilla, because you know what happens to average church member? The first time they host, the first time the disciple, and that family comes over, and they got two little kids, and that child with red Kool-Aid falls on your white couch. <laughs> and the Spirit of God that rested upon you has departed like it did in the case of... Some of you can't smile because it's happened to you. That's on you. Why did you give them red Kool-Aid if you have a white couch? Did you ever think of water and uh, feeding them outside and when they finished a little discipleship? Amen. Amen. Church, we've got to get to the point where we say our lives are about God and because I'm a tent maker does not exempt me from building the work of God. Now, go with me to 1 Timothy and we'll see the last text. You know what? No, we got to stay in Acts. I almost missed those last few verses. Let's not do that. Acts 18, 24. Then we'll go to 2 Timothy. Acts 18, 24. Look what it says. A certain Jew named Apollos, born in Alexandria, an eloquent man, mighty in the scriptures, came to Ephesus. This man was instructing the way of the Lord and being fervent in the spirit. He spake and taught diligently the things of the Lord, knowing only the baptism of John. Now, you would think an incredible asset here to the church. Now look what happens, verse 26. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue. Whom, when, there they are. Aquila is going to take the lead this time. And Priscilla had heard they took him unto them. They took him to their house and said, we got some turkey in the oven, mashed potatoes on the stovetop. We want to talk to you. Why? He had been trained under the ministry of John the Baptist, but he didn't know that Messiah that was promised, Jesus Christ, had already come, already died, 
already risen from the dead. He had to be more perfectly instructed. They heard, Apollos, you preached so eloquently and you were out there in the street and people were listening. But, but we got to tell you here, the next thing that happened, he came, he died, he rose again. He lives and we have been sent by him to preach the truth. And he said, oh boy, I missed that. And they said, well, you don't have to miss it anymore. Look what it says in verse 27, when he was disposed to pass in Achaia, the brethren wrote exhorting the disciples to receive him. But when he was come, he helped them much. Now, how did he help others? He had been helped. For he mightily convinced the Jews in that publicly what? Showing by the scriptures that Jesus was Christ. He got it. Now, here's how you can be a fellow helper. You've got to be able to help people on all levels. And if you haven't grown enough, you say, Pastor, I can only help in the nursery because those ones don't have brain cells that function. I can pat and burp and change. Sometimes you've got to take the next spiritual step. Amen? I believe every born-again child of God ought to be able to say, I've discipled someone. I believe every born-again child of God ought to be able to say, I've mentored someone. I believe every morning a child of God said, I've, I've been able to help in a class. I've been able to help in a ministry. I've been able to lead someone to Christ. I've been able to teach someone else how to soul win. Yes. Amen? Amen. You, their growth was enough by the time they met this eloquent man. They didn't sit back intimidated and allow him to continue in his air. They were able to sit down and show him the truth. And he was able to run with that truth. Now, Paulus is the name that we know and the church is new. Here comes that eloquent preacher in the church at Corinth. In the end, argued over who's greater, Paul or Paulus. That's pretty incredible when people fight over who's greater, Paul or Paulus. You've reached some kind of zenith. But you know how that started? Turkey leg dinner in the house of Aquila and Priscilla. And ladies, the only way you can do that is if you learn to cook. I'm talking to the young ladies. Something besides mac and schmack. They need something besides mac and cheese. You can't disciple someone for 12 weeks on Wendy's hamburgers. Help their heart and ruin their stomachs. That's good preaching. Anytime you can preach against Wendy's, you're, you're, you're nailing it. <laughs> 2 Timothy 4.19. 2 Timothy 4.19. Look what it says. Salute Prisca and Aquila in the household of Vanessa Forks. Now, Paul's writing to Timothy. Timothy's pastoring in Ephesus, so obviously they're back in Ephesus at this point. He doesn't talk about the... Church in their house, I believe the church now is established. I believe there's a good chance that after all these years, they're still using their finances for the glory in God. And here's why some of us don't give. I believe at this point, they probably had less financially, less physically, less in the gas tank, less to give, but not less heart. But decades later, you know where we find them? Faithfully serving God and helping the church. And Paul said, Timothy, you know I'm coming to the end of the line, probably going to die. But I'll never forget, never cease to be grateful for Priscilla 
and Aquila. Church, let me ask you this morning, did you fall in that category? Are you serving God together? Are you saying, I want God to use my abilities, and I want God to use my finances, and I want God to use my house, and I want God to use my car? Why, why is it always the same ones? The same cars, the same houses, the same people. For years, I don't know how many hundreds of people sat and ate Sue's table. Sue and Lloyd. You know why Lloyd, Sue called me. I remember on telling Sue for a minute. She called me, you know, said Lloyd, Lloyd was an emotional reactionary. If he, he, everything was a good deal. Um, it doesn't matter how much it costs. If he saw and he was sparked or spurred, it was a good deal. And he saw, Sue, do you remember the, the pool table? So he saw pool table. It wasn't cheap, but it was a good deal. Ivory inlay, amen? It's a good deal. Weighs 3,000 pounds, but it's a good deal. Had to be professionally installed, but it's a good deal. She said, Pastor, you, you think you might want to help Lloyd maybe find a cheaper one? So we make an acceptance. We have this conversation. <laughs> but you know what? Lloyd had so many people coming through that house and she was feeding and helping. I said, so I don't know if I can get him to change his mind, but here's what I'm thankful for. That's not all about Lloyd. If it were just Lloyd, I'd have a heart attack and I would go to bat for you soon, maybe try to convince him to go a different direction. But you know what he's going to be doing? There's going to be cups on that table and food plates on that table and new Christians at that table and old Christians at that table and some of you play pool at that table. You know why? That house was a revolving door for people coming through, hosted, discipled, helped, connected, encouraged. If some of you got that way, I would encourage you to buy a pool table. <laughs> 